Amen. You may be seated. Let's take God's word together this evening and turn once again to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, if you would please. Again, uh, I remind you that this is referred to as that great Magna Carta of the Christian faith, the proclamation of, of emancipation, the freedom, the letter of freedom for God's people. And I reminded you uh, that there wasn't this probably of all the New Testament books was one of the most instrumental books at the, during the time of the Reformation. And this, you'll, you'll understand that the more you read it, the more you study it. And a second on its heels is the book of Romans. But Galatians, written about A.D. 50, there's some a bit of dispute about the exact year, but about that time is when this book was written. Some believe maybe written from Corinth on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, but really a marvelous letter. And uh, we'll get into this tonight. Looking at chapter 2, we'll read the first 10 verses this evening. And we'll draw the title from our text from the middle verse. And then, God willing, make our sermon from there. Galatians 2, verse 1. Then, 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be, a, to be circumcised. And that because of false, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat, in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they into the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. And may God bless the reading and the hearing of his word this evening. I want to draw your attention to the fifth verse. In the last half of the fifth verse, Paul says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. I've highlighted that expression. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And this is our theme tonight. And I believe it is the theme of this entire book in many ways. It was the reason Paul went to Jerusalem. I remind you that Paul has rolled up his sleeves, as it were, and stepped into an arena 
You could say a theological boxing ring. His name has been slandered and consequently his message has been slandered and disannulled. His gospel by a handful of false prophets, false apostles, even verse 4, they're called false brethren. And because of this, the apostle Paul is determined to defend not just his apostleship, but his authority and then his message. You say, why does Paul go through such an effort to defend his authority, his apostleship? Because the acceptance of his message depends upon it. If we're going to accept that what Paul is saying is truth, rather than what these false apostles are saying, then we must know that Paul has come directly by commission of Jesus himself. And that's what Paul is seeking to prove. And Paul proves his apostleship, he proves his authority with a fourfold evidence that will leave everybody speechless, mouths shut, nothing to say. And we looked last week at a couple of those uh, evidences after giving briefly a testimony of how he received the gospel from God himself, how no man taught it to him, but Jesus Christ himself. He then gives us, we looked last week twice, he then gives us, first of all, how after three years, he tells us in verse 18, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brethren. So the first evidence that Paul gives, I love this because Paul's not afraid to use names. That way they could back it up themselves. And so he drops big Peter's name and he says, look, after three years with Jesus, Three years of being taught by Christ. I went to Jerusalem and I met Peter. I was with him for 15 days. And then after that, I saw James, perhaps because James was indeed the pastor of Jerusalem, the leader of the council there. And so he said, look, talk to Peter. There's my first evidence. I was with him for 15 days explaining what Christ had revealed to me. And then his second evidence we find in verse number 21, afterwards I came unto the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preached the faith once he destroyed, which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. First evidence that he was exactly who he said he was, that he had the apostleship of Jesus Christ was that he went up and talked to Peter for 15 days. Talk to Peter if you don't believe me. Second, was that all the Christians in that region of Judea heard of Paul's preaching and teaching. And the Bible says they heard that he which was persecuted was now proclaiming the message, preaching the faith that he once destroyed. And they believed it. We know they believed it because they then glorified God. So Paul says, if you don't believe Peter, and go talk to the Christians who knew, heard, saw evidence of how God was using me there. And his third evidence that he was indeed an apostle of Christ is listed for us here in these 10 verses. And it deals with that time that he goes to Jerusalem. Now this, these 10 verses are very important. Because these 10 verses are an eyewitness account from the mouth of Paul 
of what has already been recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. And it is a description of how Paul, in an amazing way, how Jesus Christ had enabled Barnabas and Paul and Titus amongst the Gentiles to get the gospel right so that their churches amongst the Gentiles were actually in a better position than the church at Jerusalem was. That's hard to imagine. But that was the case. That the churches that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, the church at Antioch and the work that was being done there had such liberty and such power and demonstration of the Spirit while the church at Jerusalem was being in many ways hindered from growth because of these Judaizers. And uh, I love this because what God is saying is it has nothing to do with those who have a good name and a big reputation, but it has everything to do with the truth. And that's what Paul is demonstrating here, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And that is exactly the theme, the heart of Paul's work, the heart of this letter, All of Paul's effort is to prove not that he was right, but that his message is the true gospel message. And his work was so that the gospel message would continue. Because at the present, men from Jerusalem came and had begun to disrupt the purity of the gospel at the church in Antioch. So-called apostles from Jerusalem came and they had gotten in and had begun to disrupt the unity and to disrupt the purity of the gospel of that church. That's why this book was written. That's why Galatians was put in the Bible. Because God in his infinite wisdom would know that on down the road, not just the Roman Catholic church, but other churches as well, would begin to add to the gospel. Would begin to add to the pure gospel message. And so therefore people would be brought off course. And I remind you, Paul said, look, if any man, if I myself or an angel or any other man preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. What strong words. Would you look here for a moment? If there be any other gospel preached, if somebody begins to add one little thing to the pure gospel, and that pure gospel is this, that that salvation is obtained by faith alone in Christ alone, because of the grace of God alone. If you add anything to that, That we are justified. We are made right with God through faith, not through works. If you add anything to that, if you begin to say, yes, we've got to believe that Jesus died in my place for my sins, but we also need to be baptized if you want to be saved. Whoa, hold on a moment. That's another gospel. When you add anything to faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, if you add anything, then you're in danger of preaching another gospel. I had a conversation recently with a man who said, yes, but tongues is the evidence of being saved. You've just added to the gospel. Don't do it. As if to say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. How foolish. That is another gospel. That's heresy. Paul himself said, not everybody speaks in tongues. So why would you add something that Jesus, that the word never added? Don't you do it. Because the second you do, you're in danger of this. Let him be accursed. If you add anything to the gospel. And that's why Paul 
is so vehemently opposed to what these people are doing because he wants the truth to continue. Now, can I just remind you this evening that this one thing is the battle of the ages. This is the fight that has been uh, raging for centuries. It is a fight for the true gospel. By the way, there is only one true gospel. There is only one way to God. There is only one way to heaven. Leonard Ravenhill said there's only one way to heaven, but there's a million ways to hell. And this is why we must fight for the one true gospel. Because any slight variation will take people to hell. If I get up here or anybody else gets up here or in any other pulpit and says, you've got to believe on Jesus and be circumcised, you're going to hell. That's another gospel. But I believe in Jesus too. But you've added to the gospel as if to say Jesus wasn't enough. As if to say his work on the cross wasn't sufficient. If you, if you tell anybody that you need to believe and then speak in tongues, that's another gospel and you're leading people to hell. If you tell people you need to believe and join my church, another gospel. Faith alone. And we'll find that in this book. You'll find all through this book that Paul deals with every problem. By the way, there are several variants of the gospel. They're all wrong. There are other gospels altogether. There is works only. Uh, there are many people who have a works-based salvation that you earn your way to heaven. Fail. There is faith plus works. Fail. There is faith and then after faith works. Fail. It's all of grace. All of grace. If you and I make it to heaven, it won't be because we were good boys and good girls. It'll be because the grace of God was extended to us and we by faith believe that Jesus died in our place for our sins. But let me tell you what that does. Would you look here? That takes the burden of pressure off of you. And it puts it on Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather the burden be given to him rather than me. Because I know he's able. And I know I'm not able. And so for this reason, Paul is ready to go to Jerusalem. He's ready to be bound. He says in another portion, ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is why you'll read on many occasions, Paul speaks about uh, my gospel. How many of you read that before? According to my gospel, twice in the book of Romans, once in 2 Timothy, he speaks about my gospel because he was making a distinction that there are many other gospels which are false gospels. Many perversions, but only one true gospel. And it wasn't Paul's because he invented it. It was Paul's because he adopted it. And it can be yours as well. I can stay, I can stand up tonight and say, uh, my gospel, because it has become mine. It was first Paul's, first Jesus's before that. In fact, we read the gospel of God is his gospel. And it must become yours. And so this third evidence of Paul's call and authority brings him straight to Jerusalem. I like this thought because it goes straight to headquarters. Now, one thing I love about the apostle Paul is he was not the kind of fellow that beat around the bush. He was a straight talking 
as clear and direct as it possibly could be. There was no dishonesty, no hiding in Paul's life and ministry. He was as transparent as transparent could be. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10, it's rendered, Thou hast fully known my doctrine. Or some might say, you have followed. You have diligently followed, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, my patience, my persecutions, my afflictions. Look, you know who I am. What you see is what you get. By the way, if there be any preacher whose life is different than his sermon, than his message, then you need to run for the hills. If there be a man that gets up and he's a smooth talker, but he walks out the flap of the tent or the door of the church and his life does not match what he preaches, he's a fake, a phony, and he's not to be followed. Our message must match our life. That goes not just for preachers, that goes for Christians. Are you listening? My brothers, my sisters, you better let your life match what you preach. Don't come in and say, oh, I'm a Christian. I've been born again by the grace of God, but yet go out and live like the devil. Your life must match what you preach. Every time your life is in disagreement from what you preach and teach, then your message is hindered. May the Lord help us. Now, the question tonight is this. How was Paul going to ensure that the truth of the gospel would continue with the churches of Galatia. That's what I'm interested in. And that's what he was doing. That's why he went to Jerusalem. That the truth of the gospel might continue. I'm interested in that now. Because that's my responsibility. And if you are a, a gospel loving Christian. It's yours as well. That we might be able to say. That the truth of the gospel. Might continue with you. How can we ensure. That this would be the case. First thing on the list, we must be willing to fight for it. I remember when I was studying at Bible college, there are many things uh, that are taught, many things helpful. And uh, I remember going through, somebody was explaining to me by using an acrostic, some of the, uh, you could say, some of the uh, distinctives of the, of the Baptist church historically. A very interesting study and interesting uh, research. But one of the distinctives, it's not just distinctive to the Baptist church only, but it is, I believe, distinctive to any true church of the Lord Jesus, is what has been entitled a polemic or polemical defense of the faith. So what on earth does that mean? It means you don't mind to get your nose snotty and your sleeves rolled up to fight for the truth. That's what it means. You don't mind being controversial. You don't mind if it hurts somebody's feelings, but you are going to stand up for what's true. And Now we want to try to do it graciously. We want to try to do it in a way that is becoming to the gospel. But at the same time, we cannot back down or compromise just simply because it's going to upset someone. We must be willing to fight so that the truth of the gospel might continue. And Paul went to Jerusalem to stand up for the truth. To stand up for what was right. No matter what anybody else thought. Now this is not just uh, something that is exclusively known to Paul. Jude writes for us 
In verse number three of his little book, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was, watch this, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. Earnestly contend. You know what that means? To earnestly contend? That means fight with everything you've got. When's the last time you earnestly contended for the faith? Now, we're living in a day day that when you earnestly contend for anything, you're called a bigot and narrow-minded. Uh, you're, you're called all sorts of things if you earnestly contend for anything. If you stand up for what you believe to be true, you're put down as being a divisionist. You're put down as being somebody who's causing problems. But we're told over and over in the scriptures that we should and must earnestly contend for the faith. Paul writes to the church at Philippi and he tells him in chapter one and verse number seven and eight, he writes by way of example. And he says, uh, even at his, as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul said, I am determined to defend and confirm the gospel. This one message that a man is justified not by his good deeds. He's not made right with God because he went to church and put money in the collection bag, said a few prayers and lit a candle. He's made right with God because he believes by faith that Jesus bled and died and suffered the wrath of God for you. I'm going to defend that, Paul said. I don't care who you are, what you say. I'm going to defend it, confirm it, until the day I die. He says in verse 17 of the same chapter, but the other of, verse 16, one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add afflictions to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What are you set for tonight? I... Many of you know I grew up playing American football just as early as I possibly could put on the American football pads in the helmet I was out there. And I always want, I had big dreams of being a professional NFL player. Yes, of course, every child imagines themselves to be better than they were. But there was something that I learned early on in the game that the, the better that I was set, the more firmly that I was set in my stance, the less likely my opponent was going to move me. I had to be set. And Paul said that I am set for the defense of the gospel. You ain't moving me. I'm planted, I'm grounded, I'm steadfast, and I'm unmovable. And I'm not going anywhere. In verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving, fighting together, not fighting with one another, but fighting together. You take this arm, I take this arm, like one big mighty army, we march together for the truth and the faith of the gospel. This is a war. And can I tell you, from the very beginning of time, Satan has attacked the gospel. 
You say, hold on, Jesus wasn't around at the very beginning of time. Yes, he was. He created the world. But but Jesus didn't die until just 2,000 years ago. But from the beginning, it has always been grace versus works. Did you know that? From the very beginning. All you have to do is read the first few pages, first few chapters of Genesis. And you see from the beginning, Satan was attacking the grace of God. Because the grace of God covered the sins of man. Do you remember you know the first battle, the first murder we find in Scripture? Who remembers what the first murder that is recorded? Can you remember? Nathan? Cain and Abel. You've got it. Cain, the first murder, the first kind of strife and contention. Do you know why they fought? Do you know why Cain killed his brother Abel? Because Abel offered a sacrifice to God, a lamb, And Cain brought the best of the fruit of the field, the best of his labors. Abel didn't work. All he did was bring a lamb. He didn't have, he didn't, he didn't plant the lamb and till the ground and water the lamb. No, he may have led it to green pastures and led it to water and took care of it. But no, no, that, that, that was what God wanted. God said this was the requirement for a sacrifice. And Cain said, I don't care what your requirements are. What I've got is better. I know you told me to bring a lamb, God, but look, look at what I've done. And can I tell you, that's exactly what humanity is doing every time they try to add to the gospel. Every time you try to say that Jesus, yes, I know Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but we also need to do this, this, and this. You have taken the spirit of Cain. And that conflict Grace versus works has traversed all through time. And even today, it's still present. It's the same battle. It's the same fight. And we must be willing to fight it. I wonder this evening, are you assured of what you believe? Do you know what you believe? And are you so assured that you're ready to fight for it? Paul marched himself to Jerusalem To stand up for truth. Now the second thing we find in our text. If we are ever going to ensure that the truth of the gospel will continue. Then we must be willing to fight for it. And number two. We must be willing to identify error. Now this is something that makes us a little uncomfortable. But if we're going to keep the gospel pure. We must. We must. Be willing to say that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Not because we're trying to be mean, not because we're trying to be unkind. Someone says, oh, but we need to be all inclusive. I believe that the gospel is as wide as the arms of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But it's coming to him. And it's coming his way, not your way. We must be willing to identify error. Paul marches to Jerusalem with Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. Why? Acts chapter 15 tells us. Acts 15 tells us in the first couple of verses. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Did you catch that? Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren. And said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. 
So here was this church of Gentiles that Barnabas and Paul were, were leading and preaching and teaching. It was marvelous. I mean, people were being saved and lives being changed. And here come these Pharisees from headquarters. Now, I don't believe they were sent out of Jerusalem with the sanction of the apostles, but they said they were. They came down and they said, hey, hold on just a moment. You all are having a little bit too much fun. Your face isn't serious enough. You haven't, hold on, hey, hold on just a moment now. You're not supposed to enjoy your salvation, don't you know? Maybe it sounded something like that. But here's what they said. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to be circumcised. You basically need to be follow the law of Moses. And when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. So Paul said, enough is enough. They had, the Bible says, no small dissension and disputation. They had a knockdown, drag out fight about it. And just to prove that they were saying the same thing that the apostles were saying, they went up to Jerusalem. The Bible says being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together, for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God which knoweth the hearts bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts. What's the next two words? By faith. By faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we shall be saved, even as they. And so it was said. Now, it's amazing to me that they even had to have this dis disputation. It's amazing that they even had to have this. That shows you how very quickly error can creep in and how very quickly it can be present, even, maybe even unknowingly. And why it is so important to identify it. It's so important to stop it. Not being nasty, not being unkind, but in much love. But nonetheless, we must get to the point where we're able to say enough is enough. Salvation. Hearts are purified. Lives are changed by faith. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you this evening and say together with you that in order to ensure that this message be preserved and may continue in this church. Tommy Wall often prays for unity in the body. Unity will only be ensured 
and will only be assured as it is based around truth. There's no other way to have unity. There's no other way. Unity cannot be attained by compromise. Doesn't happen. It's achieved around truth. Every once in a while somebody says, we, why don't you all join? Let's get involved with churches together. What a great thing. Now it could be great. Churches together could be great if every church agreed on the truth. If every church said, yes, salvation is by the grace of God alone, through faith in Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone. That would be great. If we could march together, if we could stand in the center of Oxford as one united body and say, this is the gospel. But unfortunately, at those gatherings, there are many versions or perversions of the gospel. And it can't be done. Because to stand with somebody who preaches another gospel is to say that I accept that gospel and it brings confusion. So we've got to be willing to identify error. Now listen to this. Sometimes error comes from those who seem to be somebody important. That's the hard thing. That's the hard thing. Because three times we find that expression. Look at it there in verse 6. But of these who seem to be somewhat... Whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now, Paul makes it very clear that Paul did not go up to Jerusalem to learn something new from them. He went up to Jerusalem to clarify for them. He says in verse, uh, later on in verse number 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. So very often, men who seem to be something important and someone important, very often this is how people are led astray. Not even sometimes intentionally. Because we are very trusting people. We are like sheep. And we trust just about whatever is fed to us. Somebody once said this, that it's the difference between reputation and character. God looks not at reputation. He looks at character, the heart. And we find this over and over again. In chapter 6, verse number 3, the Apostle Paul says this, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And there's a lot of self-deceiving people in the world today. They think themselves to be something that they're not. I meet them all the time. I've had arguments recently and i don't even know why i had arguments with them but arguments recently with people who thought they were something they thought they knew the truth and they thought that they were the truth is they were deceived romans chapter 12 and verse number three for i say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Be sober, serious in your thinking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 2, the apostle Paul writes and says, And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet, as he ought to know. Be careful. Be very careful. Reputation, position, title mean very little in the eyes of God. Oh, but he's a pastor. 
I'm thankful occasionally, every once in a while, somebody will send me an email or a text. Somebody will talk to me and say, I don't know if I agreed with what you said there. I don't mind that at all. I understand I'm a man. I understand I've got a lot to learn. And by the grace of God, I think I'm learning. I think I'm growing. Don't ever get to the place where you feel like you cannot question somebody simply because of their title. That's a problem. We understand God looks on the heart, but man looketh on the outward appearance. God looks for new character, not the old character. It's an interesting, interesting thought. A couple of other verses here, then we'll bring things to a, to a halt. Acts chapter 10 and verse number 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. You know what that means? It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what title you have in society. I don't care if you can read all the theological books and understand it. I don't care if you can understand what John Owen is saying and Jonathan Edwards is saying, or maybe you can't read it all. But your achievements and your position in life, all of those things do not mean anything in the eyes of God. They do not make you a better person. Romans chapter 2, we find the same thing. Listen to this. This is a beautiful portion of Scripture. Let me read it for you. Romans chapter 2. Therefore, brethren, thou art an inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost the same things, doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentiles. But glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. Paul says this. Judgment is coming. And it doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your economic status is. Or your educational level is. It doesn't matter. Because there is no respect of persons with God. And so it did not really matter. If Peter be called, in some sense, it did not really matter what title they were revered with. What mattered was whether or not they held to the truth. Last thought. If we're ever going to see the gospel continue, we must see that any addition to the gospel is a subtraction to our liberty. That's, this was the problem. They were adding to the gospel. And in verse number four, Paul said that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, 
that they might bring us into bondage. Would you look here? Anytime somebody begins to add to the gospel, you don't realize it, but they're putting handcuffs on you, putting chains on you. Okay, you need to, you need to, uh, we believe, you got to believe in Jesus, but also you've got to also believe in this confession or this, hold on. That doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. We, you should believe in Jesus, but also you need to do these three things. And if you have these three things, I know some folks who have taken some, some measures, uh, from different confessions and professions and, and uh, different standards and they've added that. You've got to believe in Jesus and do these three things and then you're saved. Wrong. Wrong. Do not add to the gospel. Any addition is a subtraction to your liberty in Christ. Now there's so much here. And we'll continue, God willing, next week to look at the next part of the scripture. But we have got to fight. Because this gospel is being attacked. And we have to do all that we can by the grace and power of God's spirit to ensure that the truth of the gospel might continue. And I don't care who it is, do, do, do not let anybody add to this message. There is no justification. You cannot be made right with God apart from the grace of God and by faith in Christ alone. Don't add to it. Don't you add to it. Let's pray. Father, help us tonight to earnestly contend for the faith, to be set for the defense of the gospel. Help us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.